Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Good morning. There's one more story in the life of Elijah that I had to get to, I had to tell, and uh, it's, we've been talking about Elijah for too long now. Like this summer, this summer we're, we're into almost fall, and we need to wrap up with Elijah. We could probably spend more weeks with Elijah, but this is the last sermon we have from Elijah, and this is really Elijah's farewell Today we, we arrive at, at the last of his stories, and I, I'll be honest, I have loved thinking about and living in the world of Elijah through the summer. As, as the person who preaches this every week, I, I really do kind of live in the world of First and Second Kings, and just, you know, constantly thinking about that terrible Ahab and his terrible son Ahaziah, and these, these things are themes in our home, and it's just, I've been living in the world, and so... Uh, I'm, I've, loved, I've loved living through and, and seeing Elijah's incredible compassion, his miraculous compassion at the beginning of his story. I love seeing his conviction, just like his bullheaded, gonna do what God tells him to do regardless of the cost, gonna do it. I've loved seeing his mostly worry-free faith and, and perseverance following God, but I've also loved his moment of vulnerability on, on Mount Sinai when he cried out to God and said, just let me die already, would you? And I, I've loved this story. I've loved, I've loved living in the, the life of Elijah for the last couple of months. And so two weeks ago, we looked at, at the first story in the book of 2 Kings, where, where Elijah calls fire down from, from heaven to, to consume the army of Ahaziah that has come to arrest him. And he does it a couple of times because, well, why, why stop at one army that you consume with fire? Might as well go for two. We're reminded in that story of Elijah's utter dominance, his, his complete upper hand, over anybody who would stand against God's plan. And, and as the one who, who fights with God's authority, he, he shows that he has, he has complete control of the situation, that there is no human authority that will overcome God's authority. And Elijah represents God's authority and is able to, to subdue any power that would come his direction because he is God's man. And we were reminded of God's jealousy and God's desire for our hearts to depend only on God in that story. And it was a, it was a great reminder. And then we, we, when we reach 2 Kings, when we get into these stories, we see a little bit of a change in, in Elijah. Elijah is very much the, the weathered professional prophet at this time. He, he, has, he has mastered the art of speaking for God. He has mastered this connection that he has with God that is so close and so intimate that the story that happens today almost becomes a natural outflow of, of a person who grows so close to God. And so the story we're looking at today uh, is, is the, the end story. And when we, when we look at the end story, it, it brings up the question of legacy. And, and Elijah never considers publicly his legacy. He never, he never worries in, in the, the writings that we have in the Old Testament. He never worries about what will people think about Elijah when Elijah's gone. They, he, never, he never asks those questions publicly. But we do see in this story that Elijah assures his legacy by appointing a good successor 
and, and by really leaving the groundwork for, for his message and, and his legacy to, to continue. I'm always intrigued by legacy questions. Legacy questions are interesting to me. Uh, it's, it's always an interesting exercise to consider what one's obituary might say, right? Have you ever written your own obituary? I haven't yet. I haven't yet. Um, it, but this is an interesting, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always interested in, in thinking about what, what will people say? What will people say? It's, it's interesting, as someone who has probably participated in more than my fair share of funerals, to, to have seen how people are remembered and, and what, is, what is worthy of remembering for family members and friends at times. And, and you know, this morning, maybe, maybe we will be challenged to think about our own legacy and wonder how friends and family might, might think about us in the future. But today we find Elijah uh, doing what he's done throughout his life. He is being driven by the word of God. And in these stories, we don't hear God speak to Elijah. We just see Elijah act on what he has heard from God. And so Elijah, Elijah never, never reported, or the writers never report exactly the words of God. We just see Elijah acting. As he hears from God, he goes, and he's sort of driven by the wind. And, and this story is, is a traveling story. Um, and uh, the, the story begins with a foreshadowing of, of the major event. And in, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, we read, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. So the, the opening really sets the scene. There's no drama here. We know what's going to happen. Everybody's on board. It's, it's, this, is, this is Elijah's departure. And uh, the, this, is, this is really a traveling story. This is a, tra- a story of, of moving from one place to another. As my nephew Judah famously summarized the, the, the Lord of the Rings series, there's a lot of walking in this story. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of walking. There, there's not a lot of drama. And in fact, there's, there's quite a bit of repetition. And so we, we get into this repetition in verse 2, and, and it kind of... I'll read the first repetition, and then we'll continue on. But verses 2 and 3, they say, And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elisha and asked him, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. So this, this pattern that is going to happen again, it serves to highlight the lack of drama, really, in the story. Everybody knows what's happening here. The prophets know, the prophets from Bethel, they come out, they say to Elisha, you know what's going to happen today. And Elisha says, of course I know, how could I not know? But let's keep it on the down low, it's, uh, we're going to keep it quiet. And I don't really know why Elisha wants to, wants to be quiet about it. If he's not ready to face the reality that Elijah is going to leave him, or if Elijah himself is being kind of weird and doesn't want to talk to anybody that day, or what exactly is happening. But for whatever reason it is, Elisha says, let's just, let's just keep it quiet. 
But everybody's on board. Everybody knows. The, the heavens are full of this message. The prophets are all receiving the same information from the Lord. Everybody is aware that today is Elijah's day to go to, to heaven. And, and um, Elijah's response to Elisha, Elijah says, stay here, I'm going to go to Bethel. And, and Elijah, Elisha says, I can't, I can't leave you, man. I can't leave you. As, as long as you're living, as long as the Lord is the Lord, I can't leave you. And, and he shows his, his incredible commitment to his master, to, to his mentor, to the person that called him into the prophetic ministry. Elisha shows this, in, this incredible determination to, as long as I possibly can, Elijah, I'm going to stick by your side. You're not going to be able to shake me just by telling me to stay put. Even if I have to follow behind you 50 yards, I'm going to follow behind you because as, as long as you're living, I want to be right, right where you are. It's an incredible, an incredible display of commitment and devotion to, to one's mentor. And so the pattern repeats. The pattern repeats in verses 4 and 5 uh, with a different location. Then Elisha said to, no, then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. But Elisha replied again, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together to Jericho. Then the group of prophets from Jericho came to Elisha and asked him, did you know the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. So again, same, same exact thing. You can, you can just take the word Bethel out and replace it with Jericho and find and replace if you're typing uh, in this up again for yourself. The, um, but the, the interesting part about this is, is the, the prophets, the, these groups of prophets. And it, it gives us a sneak peek into maybe what has happened over the later years of Elijah's ministry. If you remember when Elijah went on to Mount Sinai and, and he cried out to the Lord, one of his complaints and the, one of the reasons he wanted to die was because he was the only one who was being faithful to God. He was the only one of God's messengers that was still speaking the truth about God. And in that story, God encourages Elijah by telling him that, no, there are actually 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bent a knee to Baal, who are still faithful to me, and who are still willing to, to follow me. And, and that little bit of news, along with God's direction on Mount Sinai, is enough for Elijah to, to pick himself up and say, okay, I can keep going. I can, I can keep doing this. And so you have to believe when, when there are groups of prophets in Bethel and Jericho, and it seems like a common thing happening in these days, that the state of prophecy has improved dramatically over the lifespan of Elijah. There, there's no way that he can feel quite as alone in these days as he did in the early days of his ministry, during Ahab's reign and, and during the drought that was, that was uh, overtaking Israel. And so we, we see Elijah, and, and Elijah is also kind of the talk of the town, right? He's kind of interesting news to all of these groups of prophets. All of these prophets are, are you know, hearing from the Lord about Elijah and want to talk uh, to, to Elisha about Elijah. And, and so you, you, have to, you have to believe these are encouraging years. As the story progresses, Elijah tries to leave Elisha one more time. 
And, uh, and the pattern begins to repeat, but it doesn't repeat exactly the same way in verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through 8, we read, then Elisha, nah, then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But again, Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. Fifty men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance, as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and, stuck, and struck the water with it. The river divided, and the two of them went across on dry ground. Uh, this, is, this is just kind of interesting, right? I mean, he takes his coat, and he, he hits the water, and it, it divides. Elijah's prophetic and miraculous ministry has really... Uh, it, it, it appears different in Second Kings and in these later stories than it does early on in his ministry. And honestly, Elijah begins to look a lot like Jesus in the way that his, his miraculous ministry takes place. Like early in his ministry, he has to pray and fast and ask God for, for certain things. And, and miracles do happen throughout his ministry early on. But here, you know, in, in chapter one of this book, he, he just calls fire down. And it's not necessarily like God-sanctioned fire. It's, it's that he, he doesn't want to get arrested. And so he calls fire down from heaven. And, and you know, God allows it. But, but God then tells him, don't do that a third time, okay, Elijah? Twice was enough. And, and so here, it, it just kind of seems like well, he didn't want to get his feet wet. He didn't want to find somebody to ferry him across. And so, you know, watch this, Elisha. And uh, he makes the waters miraculously part. Uh, it's interesting. The, the Jordan River, though, um, it, it draws to mind something else. And, and when we get to the Jordan, we have to start putting together the geographic pieces of this puzzle. Uh, there, there are some common, common themes geographically in this, in this story with the rest of the Old Testament. If we, if we think about other stories uh, where especially Jericho and the Jordan River are, are right on top of each other like this, our, our minds have to go to the beginning of the book of Joshua. And, and at the beginning of the book of Joshua, our kids quizzed it last year. So our kids could tell the story. But I'll tell the story real quick. At the beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua is, is ordained the, follower, the, the leader in place of Moses. And he leads God's people across the Jordan River. But he doesn't, just, he doesn't ferry them, them across, right? The, the priests walk into the river holding the Ark of the Covenant and all of a sudden, the water dries up and, and starts piling up, it says, like there's an invisible dam holding the water in place. And, and all of the nation of Israel walks across the Jordan River on dry ground. And then they go from that miracle to the miracle of, of the walls of Jericho falling down. When the army marched around once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, and then they shouted and blew trumpets, and the walls crumbled, and God's people took the city of Jericho. 
those two stories are, are back-to-back, right on top of each other in the book of Joshua. Here, we have a story uh, of this, that route being reversed, right on top of each other, from, from Bethel, which is an important historical site and religious site from the time of Abraham. Then we go through Jericho, and then across the Jordan River, and, and we're on the other side of the Jordan River. And we have to begin to think about Moses and Joshua, and here you have Elijah and Elisha, and, and you begin to realize that, that there is some, some very intentional storytelling happening here. There's intentional storytelling to, to point that Elisha is to Elijah as Joshua is to Moses. And the connection the, the, the ordaining of the follower, the successor, is, is made explicit in the next little bit in the story. In verses 9 through 12, uh, we read this. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. And when they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them. And Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his robe, clothes in distress. So this is the first time that Elijah, this is the first time in the story that Elijah admits what's happening today. Everybody else, we've heard it from everybody else's mouth. You know, the, the author told us it was the day that Elijah was taken into heaven. And the prophets are all, all saying, you know what's happening today, Elisha, don't you? And Elisha's saying, of course I know what's happening today. But nowhere does, does Elijah admit it until right here. And, and he only admits it in order to ask Elisha what he can do for him. And, and Elisha's question sounds a little strange to our ears. To our ears, it sounds like Elisha is asking to be twice the man that Elijah is. To our ears, it sounds like he's saying, I want twice what you had. I want a double, a double portion of, of what you got. But that's not, not what's happening here. Uh, in, in the ancient Near East, when, when a man uh, passed away, his estate would have been divided into the number of sons he had plus one. Uh, so if a, if a man had three sons, his estate would have been divided four ways. But the oldest would have received two of those shares. So in that, in that scenario, the oldest boy would receive half, and then his two sons would each receive a quarter. So the, the, the eldest receives a double portion, uh, and, and only to the sons, and then the oldest, the oldest son receives the double portion, so that the family legacy will continue through through that family line. So Nathan Sawyer and I both think this is a really fair way of doing it. We both have three older sisters, 
and we're the only boys. This sounds about right, doesn't it, Nathan? Yeah. Uh, it just sounds fair, right? So, so when Elisha is asking for a double portion of, of Elijah's spirit, he is being a little bit greedy. He is. He's saying, I want to be the greatest of my generation. But he's not asking to be more than Elijah. He's, he's asking to be the designated successor. He's asking to be the one through whom the line of prophecy of Elijah goes. And so he says, let me be your successor. Let me, let me receive a double portion. Let me, let me have, have a bigger piece of what you got than, than anybody else. It is a little selfish, but it's not saying, I want to be twice what you are. It's saying, I want, to be, I want to be a bigger portion of what you are than anyone else. And so help me with that. Elijah's response makes us think that he doesn't have the, the say. He says, you're asking a really hard thing, buddy. I don't know. I don't know. And, and he leaves the response really in God's hands. He says, if you see me taken up, good for you. <laughs> if not, tough luck. Sorry. And, and, and then immediately... His, his question is answered. It, it says they're walking along and talking, and what wouldn't we give to know what Elijah and Elisha were talking about in that last conversation? There's no record of, of those words, uh, but what wouldn't we give to know the last words of Elijah to, to Elisha? As they're walking along, this chariot of fire pulled by horses of fire comes between them, separates them, takes Elijah, and, and takes him to heaven this is this is a fitting end for for Elijah as as I've talked about his his career as a prophet as he's gone from this man who who begs from God who who prays fervently who who asks God please Lord have mercy on on this woman and her son uh, as as he prays so fervently at, at the beginning of his ministry, and then as as he he seems to have such a close connection with God later into his ministry that it's not because he's not praying fervently; it's because his communion with God is just so intimate and so close that he doesn't have to say, "Oh Lord, would you please let fire fall down from heaven and consume this army?" He just Lord, and it does, right? He, he is just, he is able to, to know God's will and, and to see God's hand in, in everything he does. And, and, and his connection with God is so intimate that it, it's not fitting for him to die. It's fitting for him to just be taken into God's presence. And, and this is an interesting thing in, as we consider the rest of, of the ark of scripture and Jesus's arrival being accompanied by by the arrival of Elisha of, of Elijah again and and when Jesus is is transfigured on the mountaintop in front of the disciples there is Moses and Elijah standing next to him planning for the end of the world and the these God just sort of he he takes Elijah away for his special purpose and not many of us get assumed into heaven, right? I mean, that's not the baseline experience of Christian believers. It's not the baseline experience of, of humanity. There, there is a way, though, uh, that, 
that certain people who have certain intimacy with God, um, death is, is, not, is not an ending. And, and there are certain people that we, we have the privilege of walking with in this life that, that we, we walk with them to, to that moment when they pass from this life to the next. And, and we have that sense that this, this hasn't been the end. Uh, that, that God has taken, taken this person to the next chapter. And it's not here with us, but it's going to be a great chapter. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be incredible if it were said of each of us that, that death wasn't an end for them, that, that their intimacy with the Lord was so great that, that passing from this existence into the next was, was just the next natural step for them? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have the type of intimacy with God where, where for us to die, we can say with the Apostle Paul, for, for us to die is to gain. To live is Christ. To die is to be, to be in, in even better standing with Christ. This is just, it's such a fitting end to me. It, it, it's, a, it's an amazing picture also of Elijah choosing, with God's help, and designating Elisha as his successor. There's, there's this obvious God connection where, where on Mount Sinai, God told Elijah, anoint Elisha to be your successor. And then when, when the chariot is taking Elijah up to uh, the heavens, his cloak falls off and it, it falls there. You can just kind of see the this the scene in your mind is is Elisha is watching the chariot of fire disappear into a whirlwind and he looks down and there is Elijah's cloak at his feet and and he picks it up and and it is God saying all right your turn here you go you wanted this <laughs> are you sure you wanted this and then he he uh let's see i think i need to read some more I need some, to read some more before, before I go on and, and talk more about what he does. So let's continue on in, in uh, 2 Kings 2, and let's go verses 13 through 18. It says, Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. I didn't read that part before, and so you were wondering, weren't you? Like, what, what's he talking about? So, sorry. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan, he struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Then the river divided, and Elisha went across. When the group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what happened, they exclaimed, Elijah's spirit now rests upon Elisha. And they went out to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Sir, they said, just say the word, and 50 of our strongest men will search the wilderness for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has left him on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha said, don't send them. But they kept urging him until they shamed him into agreeing. And he finally said, all right, send them. So 50 men searched for three days and did not find Elijah. Elijah Elisha 
was still in Jericho when they returned. Didn't I tell you not to go, he asked. That's the end of the story. Uh, so, uh, I don't know what to do with the 50 men searching. I don't know what to do. That, I, Elisha is obviously... So we see, we see God anointing Elisha, right? God lays the, the cloak at his feet. And then Elisha picks it up and he repeats the miracle of Elijah crossing the river. He strikes the, the Jordan River, crosses on dry ground across the, the Jordan, just like Elijah had done. He, he is the, the, the miraculous successor of Elijah. And then the prophets come to him, and they see him as an authority. And they had already sort of seen him as an authority when Elijah was around, it seems like. You know, they come to him instead of going to Elijah. And maybe it's just that Elijah's probably an intimidating dude. And so maybe the prophets just said, let's go to Elisha. He's a little more approachable. Uh, but they, they still come to Elisha, and they, they see him as an authority. And they're not going to send 50 men into the wilderness until Elisha says, all right, if you have to do it, go send the 50 men. And, and when they come back, he says, I told you not to go. That was kind of dumb. And then they see him as the authority. So, so it's, it's God's, God's ordaining of Elisha, and it's, and it's God's evidence of his ordaining of Elisha through this miracle of crossing the Jordan. And it's, it's the people's acceptance of Elisha as the new leader and, and the person to follow after Elijah is gone. It's, it's these, these three ways in which we see Elisha becoming the, the successor of Elijah. It's very similar to the way that that Joshua becomes the, the successor of Moses. God ordained him and called him. Moses said, you're the one. You are going to lead the people. And, and then he miraculously leads the people across the Jordan and to take the city of Jericho. And, and we are just drawn to this idea that, that God's trying to say something about succession here. And it could be, it could be that historically... There was some reason that, that Elisha needed the authority of being the name successor of Elijah. Maybe historically there were some people who didn't want to accept Elisha, and so these stories got repeated so that Elisha's authority would be, would be established. That, that's one possibility. And it's probably, there, pro there might be some, something to that. That historically there was a reason that Elisha needed his authority affirmed, and so these stories kind of become a part of of the traditional stories of God's people so that Elisha is deemed the, the chosen follower of Elijah. Uh, maybe there's some of that. There, there is also in this a, a reminder to us about succession. Uh, the Bible, th this theme of succession, it, it comes up with some frequency in the Bible. We, we talked about it in the story where, where Elijah put his mantle over Elisha and, and called him into the, the ministry, the prophetic ministry. And, and I told you how through history there, there was that great transition from Moses to Joshua, that great transition where, where God's people didn't miss a beat when they went from wandering in the wilderness to moving into the promised land because Moses anointed Joshua to be his follower, and, and God's people moved into the promised land with incredible momentum. But then Joshua really dropped the ball 
when it came to naming its successor. And, and the repeated narrative after, I mean, even during Joshua's life, as the people are starting to go away, Joshua has to tell people, y'all can do what you're going to do, but as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. But he wasn't raising up disciples. He wasn't calling a successor to lead the people well. And then we get into the book of Judges, and over and over again, it, it's people did what was right in their own eyes. And people are not following after God. They're, they're just doing whatever, whatever seems right to them. And, and we see that pattern repeated through the, the story of Eli and Samuel and, and uh, Eli's sons that are wicked. And then Samuel seems to not be able to get any momentum for his own legacy. We, we see it here where finally there's a good successor named and, and God's appointed leader is going to, to make sure that there is a good, godly leader giving people direction for the future, but it's short-lived again. And we see it in the New Testament. Jesus appoints 12, and the 12 realize, oh, we've got a, we've got a disciple as well. Just because we're disciples of Jesus doesn't mean it ends here. We have to, we have to disciple those who will come after us. And, and so this, this story, it, it really points, I, I believe one of the reasons it's in scripture is to, to remind us to consider our legacy, to, to remind us to, to think about who is coming after us, who, who is going to be the, the Elisha in my life that I'm going to bring alongside it, it requires a little bit of us to think that way. It, it requires that we live a life worthy of emulation. It requires that, that we try to get so close to God that the end of this life is not really that much of an end. But for us to die is, is to gain and to live as Christ. It, it means that we live in such a way that, that we would be proud if people lived following the pattern of our lives. It also means that we invest in, in those who might come after us. It means that, that we intentionally, it, it takes intentionality. Um, you, I've been really, really challenged and impressed by Pastor Ryan since he's been in our office. Every Wednesday morning, bright and early, he's on, on a Zoom call with a couple of MIT's ministers in training. Uh, it's, it is rigid. It is every Wednesday morning, right? It's early. It's before I get to the office, but I know it happens because it's, it's happening. And uh, he, he, ha he, he has intentionally carved that time out of his schedule because it's important that somebody is, is talking to, to new pastors. I don't think they're all younger than you even. Uh, they're new pastors who are coming into the ministry, listening to them, answering questions, speaking into their lives. It, it takes intentionality to, to have successors, to, to have people who will follow in our footsteps. Um, and I, I, I think this is challenging to us um, because it requires us to, to prioritize uh, the relationships that we have. It really requires prioritizing relationships. 
Um, we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily always prioritize relationships. I think it honors, honors relationships when they happen, but it doesn't necessarily say, yes, that's important. In our, in our culture, it's, it's very easy for the measure of our lives, for, for the, the thing that, that defines us to be the toys that we have in our home or in our driveway. Uh, it's very easy for, for us to, to say that life is made up of wearing the right shirt or having the right pair of shoes, and those things are going to make us significant. Um, and in our culture, there, there is some correction to this. There's some correction to this, and, and this is a lie that I fall prey to personally. There's, there's a correction to this. That it's not about the stuff you own. It's about the experiences. It's about having these rich life experiences that, that defines you. You know, that you are the sum total of the over-the-top adventures that you have. Um, or, or that, you know, it's not all about the expensive, expensive stuff, but it's about the cool trips and the interesting tours and the adventures. And our culture is glad to sell you gear and tour packages for all of it, right? We, we can spend money on these things too, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, and those, those things are so tempting to us to take away our, our time and our energy from, from the things in life that will actually leave a lasting mark in this world. It, it's, so, it's so tempting to us, and it's, it's honestly very easy to, to get wrapped up in the idea that, that what will be significant about my life will be the things I own or, or the experiences I, I have. Forgetting that, that really what will last beyond us are the relationships that we build the people we invest in, the lives we touch and shape, those, those, things, those things take us away from, from accumulating more and more. They, they don't depend on, on us accumulating more and more. Um, and so when we, when we consider our, our legacy, and what we leave, we, we consider the people we consider the people that we've touched and the relationships we've had. Um, I'm going to serve communion in a little bit. Um, someday I'll tell you the story of Louis Bustle, but not today. This, this last story from the life of Elijah, um, it, it reminds us very much to consider who we are investing in investing in. Um, it's, it's the people we invest in that will tell the legacy, that will tell our story. Elijah chose incredibly well, right? If, I hope you'll continue on. Maybe if you're reading through the Bible in a year with us, you've, you've read uh, 2 Kings or you're going to read 2 Kings and, and you'll read some of the incredible stories from the, the life of Elisha. He is a worthy successor to Elijah. Uh, and, and he reminds us, you know, we, we too ought to look for those uh, who, can, who we can invest in and, and create worthy successors for ourselves. Um, we, uh, let me just address a couple of, 
of other issues as we as we talk about this. I, I think one of the excuses we we make um, in in not investing in others is is just that we didn't have anyone doing it for us, and we we don't know what it looks like. Right? I think it's rare to for for a person to to feel as if they have been mentored in our world. I think it's rare for people to to say that that person was my mentor. That person really, really shaped who I am. Uh, there, are, there are a handful of those around, but that's not, the, that's not the experience of everyone. Can I just encourage you, if, if that's not your experience, let, let your life change the future for somebody else. Don't let other people go around the world saying, I've never had anybody invest in me. Be, be the person you wish you would have had. Leave the legacy you wish somebody would have left in your life. For, for a lot of us, maybe we don't feel like we have the wisdom or the, the experience or, you know, a lot to give. Uh, I don't know that it requires much more than just pointing people to the Lord, pointing people to God, to asking the question, what's on your heart and mind, and, and what do you think the Lord is, is saying to you? And, and then for, for young people, like maybe you're thinking, boy, I hope a lot of old people are hearing this and, and thinking, I want to mentor somebody and I'm going to mentor one of these people in the front row. Um, can I just say that it, in order to, to find a mentor, often it, it requires us being proactive, looking for someone who, will, who we say, I want to be like that person and, and trying to get close to that person. I, I have found in my own life that, that the relationships that have had the biggest impact on me have been because I have been intentional about trying to, to get into the space of a person that I want to become like. So as a, as a congregation, um, this, is, this is who we claim to want to be. <laughs> we want to be a growing community of all generations. We want to be a body that that seeks to, to grow together intergenerationally. We don't, want to, we don't want to divide ourselves. In fact, today is Family Sunday. You know, we have our kids in our service today intentionally because we, we don't want to every week send our kids to a different place. We, we want to be together and be a body that, that lives together and impacts one another together. We want to do life together intergenerationally. And, and we do this uh, intentionally, and we do it also by the grace of God that's at work in us. Today, we're going to celebrate the grace of God, and we're going to invite the grace of God into our, our hearts and lives by receiving the meal of communion. Communion is one of those times when, when the playing field is leveled. Uh, we, we all come with Jesus as, as our host at this meal. It, we, uh, we remember that uh, Jesus himself has ordained communion. He, he commanded his disciples to partake of the bread and wine as emblems of his broken body and his shed blood on the very night he was betrayed, his last night with his disciples. And so when, when we come together and we celebrate this meal, we remember that, that Jesus has invited all of his disciples to, to take this meal. So in our church, we, we don't require that you're a member or that you're, you're baptized or anything other than we ask that you would be seeking Jesus with your life as you come and take this meal.
Uh, we remember when we, when we take communion, every time we, we take it, we remember that uh, it's, it's a reminder of Jesus' suffering and death on our behalf. But it's also a reminder that Jesus did not finish the work that he came to do on earth. And he will come again, and he will set all things right. And, again, we remember that we come as one. We come as one. Jesus hosts us all, one body, here at Jesus' table. So, as we prepare our hearts for communion, will you, will you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, by your holy mercy, by your grace, you sent Jesus to be our Savior, to die in our place, to take upon himself our sin. Hear us, Lord, we most humbly pray. We, we thank you, God, for these gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the instructions of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw our hearts closer to yours as we partake this morning. We remember, Lord, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks to you, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after the meal was over, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts through Christ Jesus, we ask that you would make for us these gifts of bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus, so that we may be for the world, his body, redeemed by his blood. Lord, we come to you with sincere hearts, asking that you would tie us together with the bonds of your spirit. Make us one. Help us, Lord, to invest well in one another, to love one another well, and to be shaped by your spirit that's at work in each of us, Lord. We thank you, God, for this meal that we can partake and for this body that we can take together with. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to participate in this holy mystery. We've come as a body. We've come as one. We've, we've remembered the suffering and death of Jesus. We've remembered the legacy of our Savior imparted to his disciples, to their disciples, to their disciples, to their disciples. It has arrived at us, Lord, because faithful men and women through history have remembered the good work that you have done through Jesus and have passed it down to generation after generation until it has arrived to us. Lord, let us not take lightly what has been given to us. As Paul describes it, this treasure that we carry in jars of clay, may we May we invest this treasure that you have given us for your kingdom's sake. May we surround ourselves with men and women, with, with young people, with, with mentors and folks older than us who can impart in us what we need and we can impart in others 
what will encourage them along in their journey. Lord, we, we want to be people who are spoken well of when we're gone. But Lord, when we consider why, we, we really want a legacy for your sake. As we think, God, about the work that you did through the prophet Elijah, how he called Elisha and how, how the Spirit moved through, we recognize that it was for your glory. It was for your glory and for the sake of those who would come after that you did those great things. And so, God, we pray that our legacy would bring you glory, that you would be honored, and, Lord, that we would have in mind a legacy of, of sowing faith, of, of extending your kingdom beyond us, and of seeing your reign continue on for the next generation. We need your help. And so as we have experienced your grace this morning, that binds us together, we pray that your grace would continue to be at work in our hearts. We ask, God, that, that you would move us to be the people who, who would extend your, your good work into the world and to those who would follow us. We pray, Lord, that you, you would stir our hearts and open our eyes to see who it is that you would have us invest in. We trust you, Lord, and we thank you. We pray that you would go with us now into this week. Help us, Lord, to, to hear your voice clearly and to respond well when you call us. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for your presence that's here with us and your presence that goes with us into this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.